0: Scuttlebutt podcast episode number four. Scuttlebutt, written by Donnie McVane, read by Roger Burley, hosted by Leslie McVane. Music, Scuttlebutt, courtesy of the composer Chuck Romanoff. Scuttlebutt is a Bertha May production and is sponsored by Portland Media Center. It is the story of two young men from a tiny community in Casco Bay, Maine, one who went to war during World War II and one who stayed home, and how their dreams of life in the community have changed. When we last left the community of Scuttle, John and Paul had snuck out of the house to join Sperma at the Methodist Church, where some missionaries were showing a talking movie and taking up a collection for the people of Africa. And now, part four of Scuttlebutt. The burly longshoreman showing off his biceps Heaving and a-hauling mighty freighters oh. in and out All of the town folk think he's quite a guy Except he don't lift a finger to help around the house but ain't it a shame? Nobody knows, nobody's to blame The truth ain't pretty, I think you will agree Just don't you tell nobody that you heard it from me
1: All the way to the Smythes, the only one talking was Holly Gay. I thought the movie was quite enlightening. Well, she got no response, so she tried again. Imagine that little girl getting married 11 years old, though she certainly looked older. She soon gave up after still getting no feedback. They had hardly stopped, when Edna Smythe left the car, scooted into the house, and ran upstairs without removing her coat. As expected, she found her husband in bed, half asleep. Well, she brought him from half awake to full awareness with, Ira, Ira Smith, what are you doing, going to do about this? About what, dear? Your daughter's out there with that brazen hussy, that's what? She heard the car shift into gear and ran to the window. They're driving away and it's all your fault, Ira. Yes, dear, all my fault, I know. Returning from the window, Edna continued in the same mission. You've got to save your baby, Ira. There's no two ways about it. Oh, you're right, dear. I'll talk to her tomorrow. That sounds just like you, Ira. Put it off till tomorrow. You will get out of that bed and go save your daughter right now. She flounced from the room. Having heard something about the beach, Ira went looking for them. He stumbled on the so-called beach party, coming into earshot just after Rain had finished a hard-to-believe story about a beach party she'd attended in Connecticut. Holly Gay had heard of skinny dipping, but could hardly believe that it was with both sexes. This night, she had cheated a bit by staying well away from the other two. Then she got out of the water before Rain and Sperma, When they finally emerged, Holly Gay looked everywhere, but at either of them, though it was too dark to tell one from the other. The spruced-up campfire revealed an approaching man. Rain gave a small shriek that was typical, and the man stopped right in his tracks. He said, It's only me. Don't be alarmed. He commenced to walk in their way again. If he had been a few minutes earlier, Sperm and Rain would have been caught with their uh, pants down. Holly Gay thought about that and decided it would not have bothered either one of them one iota. She had no idea, though, how her father might have reacted. Holly Gay announced his arrival. It's Daddy. Is there anything wrong? Nope, just that your Aunt Lydia isn't well, and we're going to drive down to go see her tomorrow. If we go away, where is rain going to stay? Holly Gay sounded distressed. Before Ira could answer, Rain informed them that they needn't worry about her. She'd take care of herself. Well, probably should take that car home and pack it for the trip. But he didn't seem too sure of himself. Rain slapped the keys into Ira's hand and said, I'll pack and move out in the morning. Thank you for having me, Mr. Smythe. Would you like a hot dog before you go? At the parsonage, they were drinking unspiked fruit punch that Mrs. Titherington had thoughtfully provided and the drink only added to the missionary's disappointment in the scuttle. He also felt pretty down when he totaled up the collection. He announced the amount to the minister. Well, that's pretty darn good, especially when we told them it was free. Then he noticed the other man taking money from the plate and putting it in his pocket. Guy seeing the look on Reverend Titherington's face, explained, I just take out what I put in. I do these shows all the time. There's no way I could afford to donate money to all of them. That was pretty impressive to watch you pull that pocket inside out, getting your money free. The younger man, thinking this a compliment, bragged, Just a trick of the trade. Your act of putting your purse in the plate, that was pretty effective, too. Hmm. the missionary took the purse out and passed it to the minister. Oh, no, that goes in the collection. Guy pulled out 37 cents from the purse and finished out and fished out a check. Holding a check, he said, what's this, your whole week's pay? Actually, that was my whole two weeks pay. He had a defeated look as he laughed. I forgot it was in there. Guess I'll be looking for work the next couple of weeks. Sometimes I fill in as a stern man on a lobster boat, and that helps us keep our heads above water. I get paid pretty well for that-usually ten dollars a day for a full eight to ten hours hauling traps; but it's awful hard work, and usually the bait stinks to high heaven so I'm half sick all day. I don't know how much longer I can handle it. We do need the money badly, and the lobstermen do really need help at times. When their regular crewmen can't go for whatever reason, it really slows up the operation. And some stern men have lots of reasons. He was shocked to see the missionary tearing up his contributed check. What are you doing, he demanded. That check was worthless, he said with a grin aimed at the old minister. If he had added the $62 in the plate, it would have more than doubled the collection but old Minister Titherington would have had a hard two weeks. "'What are you talking about? "'That check was from my employers. "'It was as good as gold!' "'A sprinkling of spit hit the missionary. "'Without a signature, it was worthless. Guess you'll just have to ask them for a new one.' Justice Neil Dow showed up 15 minutes early next morning looking like he was going on safari. "'Be careful you don't fall in, Mr. Dow. "'All that stuff on you'd sink like a rock.' "'Neil laughed and said, "'Thanks for the heads up, Manley. I'll be cautious.' "'They carried the punt down and gradually put it in the water. "'They were being very careful "'so no mud would get lodged in the partly open seams. "'They didn't want anything to interfere with the natural swelling. "'She don't seem to be leaking too much, Dad. "'That's some good.' but make sure we take the oars aboard the boat. She'll probably be sunk time we get in. Gainley never missed the stroke rowing for the boat. Much out of normal, the old Pontiac split-head engine started right up and the boat headed offshore. A noisy engine limited most speech until they slowed down. Justice Dow was ready with questions. The first one was for Manley. What kind of fish are those? Where do you catch them? They're heron, and usually we buy our bait from the lobster dealer. When they're in the bay, we sometimes torch them. What is that, Manley? torching? We wrap rags round the metal end of the swordfish pole, dip it in stove oil, light it afire, hold it just clear of the water, and cruise through schools of heron. Manley was somewhat hesitant at his long-winded speech. For some reason... The heron come right up to the torch where it's easy to scoop up with a dip net. He moved over to the trap that had just come aboard and threw all the lobsters overboard. He baited the trap with a net bag of herring and slid it to the stern. The next trap had several lobsters that Manley measured with a brass device, and still they all netted up in the water. There was one big lobster, though, that Justice Dow knew was the keeper. Manley picked it up, turned it over, and then threw it back. Why did you throw that lobster back? It was certainly big enough. Gainly got to answer. She was a female with eggs. State law says return them to the ocean immediately. Unlike many of our laws, this is a good one. The sun had been up some three hours when they all agreed it was time for something to eat. Neil Dow fished in his bag and came out with a boiled egg sandwich commenting that he'd save his banana until later. Gainley had been watching the Justice's actions and had to say, Good then truly sent you some grub. You'd have been eaten by bait before the day was done. He passed over three sandwiches. She didn't know, so she only put a smidgen of mayo on them. Well, I don't know what a smidgen is, but it surely does taste some good. He'd been waiting to use... Some good, since hearing it so often in the down East manor's speech. You already told me, Manley, and I guess my age is catching up with me. You were in the navy, am I right? On a destroyer in the Pacific. That's right, Mister Dow. Manley took his last bite. We lost many destroyers. Did your ship have any problems? Eh, mostly of our own making, laughed Manley. Our executive officer was checking lifeboats and discovered rust on some exposed cans of survival rations. They were only rusted on the outside. The spam and the hardtack on the inside was perfect. Not that it mattered to the United States Navy. When the exec went up to the bridge, I gathered all them rusted cans I could carry and stuffed my locker full of them. When he got back, he ordered the rusted cans tossed overboard. Well, it soon became obvious that this was not exactly a good idea. We was leaving a trail of cans <laughs> floating behind our ship. Next, he ordered them opened, their contents thrown over and the cans crushed. The men in the stern noticed commotion in their wake, and it was the next day when the word was out a carrier pilot reported a whole column of sharks was following the destroyer. The executive officer, Lieutenant Erg, claimed his arse was hamburg when the skipper confronted him. Manley was in a roll. Only other thing worth mentioning was when a Japanese suicide plane appeared ahead of our ship and gave every indication that we was his target. Every gun that could bear opened up, but the little plane flew right past us. My battle station was the stabbed wing of the bridge, and that plane looked so close I could almost touch it. I could see the pilot, and he looked like a scared kid. As it was getting well past us, there was the sound of a gun near to me. The skipper was standing there holding his forty-five pistol, trying to get off another shot. That's when I realized it felt like I had a bee sting on my rear. Turned out the forty-five shot had nicked a stanchion, and part of the bullet, it bit me. It probably wouldn't have been, even broke the skin if I'd had underwear on. But when the battle station sounded, I was in the shower. That's why all there was time for was shot pants. Manley rambled on. When, when, wonder whatever become of that kid, there wasn't a bomb hitch to the plane that I could see. And when they send out suicide planes, I can't see them putting enough gas in them to get home. Can you? Anyhow, my tail got infected and they give me a new drug called penicillin and it was better, all better, in a week or so. Well, they hauled three more pairs of traps and gaily announced that, that that should be all the traps that they had had outside, that he lost a pair earlier in a nor'easter. The load of pots they brought in were set fairly close to home so they would be handy to take ashore next trip. When the last trap was set, Manley spoke. Dad, didn't you say 17 pair? I'm almost positive we said 18 pair. His father gave him a grin. Probably, it's because I have trouble counting once my fingers and toes are pretty or near all used up. Looking at his pocket watch, Gainly informed them, looks as if this high running tide don't want to slack off. We've got to wait for the buoys to show. Shouldn't be long. Good chance for a mug-up. was also a good chance for Neil Dowd to ask questions. You always live in Scuttle, Mr. Moore? Uh, I've been there a long time, but I was born and lived my early years on Rocky Shore Island. That's one of the offshore islands, almost down there to Penobscot Bay. It was quite a story how I ended up here. Oh, we'd love to hear it, wouldn't we, Manley? Manley had heard it so many times before, so he made like he was busy. <coughs> Gainly started to talk. It started with a load of lobsters. Dad was smacking to potlin. He took my brother Natural and me to be his crew. We hadn't gotten very far when we ran into a thick fog. We just hove to, there being no wind anyhow. Stayed thick the next day, but we hoisted the mainsail anyhow. I guess and desperation. Natural, being older than me, claimed he was captain after Dad went down for a nap. Natural told me to get up in the bow and be on the lookout. I went up there, but there was nothing to see because it was sedan thick. Is this a fair chance for me to ask what is smacking? They call a boat ferrying lobsters a smack, Gainley answered politely, and then went on with his story. Here I am, just a kid looking at a wall of fog. Next thing I see, the water acting funny, and then there was hoss all around us. I hollered at Nat, but he didn't hear me, so I got the swordfish pole, put the dad on it, and haphooned a big fish that was swimming across our bow. I got out of the way of that rope because there were stories about people getting snarled and hauled overboard and drowned. The rope had stopped paying out, and I figured we'd lost that fish when Dad came up on deck. Just then, the rope started flying out again. He picked a chance and got a turn around the cleat to put more strain on the fish. The smack boat turned towards offshore. That poor fish must have towed us a mile before he tuckered himself out. So we got that beautiful hoss mackerel aboard still alive. I was all for letting him go. But my father said he was mortally wounded and was going to die, so we'd better keep him. We kept the sail up, and all it did was slat. I had the nine to midnight shift, and Dad cautioned me to keep a good lookout. And don't harpoon no nothing else. Ring the bell and blow the horn every two minutes as hard as you can. He said we might be close to where big coal ships would be heading into or out of Portland. It was all according to how much the tide had set us to the wested. I wasn't on watch long when I heard what sounded like a ship's horn. I listened a while. It was loud, and you could have set your watch by it. It was almost time for Dad's watch, so I called him and told him about the loud horn. He figured out where the other horn was coming from and kind of drifted us in that direction. When we got close enough to see the big horn, we both, Got a surprise. It was only a medium-sized sailboat, with no one in sight on deck, and that horn howling every two minutes. Well, we bumped the sailboat a little, and a man rushed out on deck. You'd have thought he had come from we had come from heaven, and he was so tickled to see us. They had been lost almost from the time they left Portland two days ago. They, being Mr. John Lord Morgenthau his wife Evangeline, and their ten-year-old son Eldridge. They set out for Scuttle, Maine, with a ten-cent bag of potato chips and a bottle of red wine, expecting to be there in a few hours. Well, we fed em lobsters and water. They ate so many lobsters, I wondered if we was going to have any left to sell. The man wanted us to stay with them until the fog lifted, so Dad could tell them a course for Scuttle. We didn't have a damn thing for fenders, but there was enough on the sailboat. We could have tied them a foot apart the whole length of our... 9.30 the next morning, the sun was starting to pack its way through the dying fog. Gainley glanced over and saw that Justice Dow was still awake. Somehow, during the night, the men had agreed that I would go up on the sailboat and Dad would pick me up on the way home. They were acting like With me piloting, everything would be under control. (laughs) If they only knew how scared I was, they wouldn't have felt quite so secure. Actually, though, the trip in was very simple. All I had to do was stay to the right of the black boys and the left of the red uns. It's a different world when you can see. The Morgenthau's lived in a great big house on the eastern point of Scuttle. They had people working there when we arrived, The first one I met was Henry Cousins. He was a little older than me with his fingers all different lengths. He was a nice guy but kind of standoffish. His mother Eve was a cook and his baby sister truly was just learning to walk. Then there was the head cook. She was old and there was a young maid who never seemed to do much of anything. At first I was as useful as a cat but slowly I became a big brother babysitter after Truly started walking and got to be a challenge in the kitchen. Trulie and I got to be buddies and sometimes we did girl things and other times we got dirty doing boy stuff. Mr. Morgenthau invited me back every summer, though I can't imagine why. Thinking back to when she was just a little toddler, I can't remember much, just that she was a very lively little girl. You knew that baby grew year by year until one summer when I arrived there. Our little one had blossomed into a lovely young lady who knocked me some senseless. I knew from that moment she was my true love, but I was almost ten years older than truly. How could it possibly work out? I did everything I could to prove my love to her. First thing I did was quit smoking, because she didn't like it. Started shaving at least once a day. Seemed like I spent half my life in the shower, sometimes as much as twice in one week. My mother told me about deodorant, so I started using that. My hat hung out on my sleeve till I was 26. At the birthday party, truly reached over and gave me a light butterfly kiss right on my nose. I peeked at her mother and she sort of smiled. That gave me hope. And for the next couple of years, I just bided my time. And when she graduated from high school, we started going together. And then things began to change. Instead of being her big brother, I became her 27-year-old boyfriend. That 10-year space between our ages just then began to shrink to the point that I realized "'She was my superior in every way that mattered. "'After a while, truly agreed to marry me. "'While I was still on my knees, she shocked me with, "'Took you long enough. "'I've been crazy about you since I first saw you. "'I was top to bottom, pot to stab it, "'fore and aft, and any other way you could imagine, "'crazy in love. "'To prove my love, I did things that I hoped she noticed.' You can see how far gone I was. To this day, I thank God for bringing her into my life. Well, Eldridge and I had kind of been buddies till I quit smoking. It seemed like after that he and I just drifted apart. Then it might have been somehow connected to Truly. He just might have been jealous. Some buoys starting to show, Manly sounded gruff. He didn't appreciate men who liked to hear about his mother. Truly, was not public property. We'll probably only take up another 40 or so. I can feel she's got a little water in her. Looking over at Justice Dow, gainly explained, this old girl is getting some years on her, and just about all wooden boats gets weak in the gabbards and leaks some. Well, is there a pump? That handle over there is a pitcher pump that sucks out the build water. Ain't much of a wreck, but it's all we got. Okay, if I pump a while. He was reaching for the pump handle. Be my guest. They hauled and piled on a load of unbaited traps. Gainley steered into his cove and drove the bow up on the mostly sand beach at slow speed. He and Manley began throwing the round-top traps overboard, each one thrown over a different side of the boat. A man's voice was heard. "'Hello, Gainley, and I do believe that big guy is manly. "'Welcome home, young man. "'And do I see a third member of the crew of the good ship say when? "'He does have a license, right?' "'Well, I, I know you're kidding, Bobby, "'but it wouldn't surprise me one stinking bit "'for Augusta to come up with something like that.' "'Uh, they already did, Gainley.' "'Anyone in the boat that assists in the operation "'shall have a current sea and shore fisheries license. "'I'm going to have to write him up.' "'Well, go ahead, but I'm betting you end up with egg on your face.' Ganley threw the last trap off as if he was mad at it. "'What are you talking about, Ganley? "'Do you dispute the fact that this fellow was pumping out the boat?' Young warden was now over his ankle-high shoes as he tried to get closer to the say-when. Bobby, do you, th- no, you think what will happen when the newspaper find out that you've arrested Justice Neil Dow, a member of the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, Justice Dow was trying to stop Ganley. Um, I'm a member of the New Jersey Supreme Court, and if I broke the law, I certainly should face the consequences and the way the main warden reads it, I did break the law. While the justice was admitting his guilt, the warden was tearing up the complaint. Here now, what are you doing, young man? If I was as guilty as John Doe, I am no less guilty as Justice Neal Dow. I demand that you reinstate that warrant. The disturbed warden drifted slowly away. That afternoon, truly awakened Ganley, with word that the commissioner was on the phone. It was way out of the ordinary for her to interrupt his nap, and she informed the caller of this fact. You do know that most lobstermen are up and gone before dawn, so the only way they can catch up on sleep is to have a nap when it's available. I understand, and if this is a bad time to call, I'm very sorry, Mrs. Moore. It is Mrs. Moore, right, he added. You do have a young voice, Thank you. And here's Gainley. Hello, Commissioner. What can I do for you now? Well, first off, let me introduce myself. My name is John Desmooks, and my plan is to always be available to fishermen. Warden Smiley called me all upset. Seems as if he walked right into trouble. He said it ended up Dan if he did and Dan if he didn't. That's a tough one to get out of. Tell me, Mr. Moore... What can we do to defuse this problem? The commissioner went on. As I am new at this job, I'm sure this won't be my last mistake. It was entirely my doing. A change in the wording of that license law was supposed to make it simpler. But the fellow who did it, uh, namely me, messed up. Now, what can we do to rectify my meddling? Well, that whole episode was some silly in the first place. Ganley stopped to think. You know, or maybe you don't, every Highlander that goes out hauling is thinking what an exciting day it's going to be. Two hours later, they plumb bored. After being tired of the whole process long enough, they start looking for something to do. When Justice Dow offered to pump, I thought, whoa, that'd be a good idea. Get him out of my hair for a while. Never had any idea it was breaking the law keenly hesitated, and then finished with, the justice was calm as a millpond until he saw Bob tear up the original paperwork. That's what set him off. What would you think if we changed the wording a little and said, anyone assisting in the lobstering process by coming in contact with traps, rope, buoys, or lobsters shall have a current Maine lobster license. He chuckled. Then we can tell Mr. Dow that the complaint was null and void and disposed of. Thank you, Mr. Moore. I hope you have a good season. And I hope so also. Goodbye, Mr. Commissioner, uh, John. Keep up the good work. I would also like to say that in my book, Warden Smiley is doing a finest kind job. Thank you. In my book also. Goodbye, Mr. Moore.
0: Scuttlebutt- Shame, Nobody knows, nobody's to blame The truth ain't pretty, I think you'll agree Just don't you tell nobody that you heard it from me